Shalom, shalom. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm delighted to hear that you are drawn to the Jewish root that supports the grafted in branches. You know, Torah is central to properly understand and perform the will of Hashem, that is, God. It is crucial for us to understand theologically that the primary purpose in Hashem's giving of the Torah as a way of making someone forensically righteous only achieves its goal when the person, by faith, accepts that Yeshua, Jesus, is the promised Messiah spoken about therein. Welcome to Parashat Naso. Take the reading address is Bemidbar, Numbers, chapter 4, verse 21 through chapter 7, verse 89. The reading date is for Shabbat, and I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel Ben Lyman. The uh, written commentary was updated on May 24th of 2007. Note that all quotations are taken from the complete Jewish Bible translation by David H. Stern. Jewish New Testament Publications Incorporated, unless otherwise noted. Let's begin with the opening blessing for the Torah. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, Asher Bachar Banu Mikol HaAmim, Venatan Lanu Et Torato. Baruch atah Adonai Noten HaTorah. Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the Universe. You've selected us from among all the peoples and have given us your Torah. Blessed are you, Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. Well, this is Parashat Naso. And uh, what we have going on in the first few chapters of the book of Numbers, ever since chapter 1, we have a census going on. A census, if you recall, was being taken for a variety of reasons. Um, the first few chapters of the book of Numbers spill over into these first two Torah portions. Hashem was masterfully preparing an army that would go into the Promised Land and take possession of it for Him, as well as for the people themselves. Thumb back to Numbers chapter 1 and look at verse 2, and it says, Take a census of the entire assembly of the people of Israel by clans and families. Now, this is Hashem speaking to Moshe, obviously. Record the names of all of the men twenty years old and over who are subject to military service in Israel. You and Aharon are to enumerate them company by company. When I read these pasukim, these few verses, and um, I see that um, Hashem is telling Moshe to single out men who are, uh, how does it say here, um, subject to military service, I understand that God was actually ready to take the people in. However, after the incident with the twelve spies, in which two brought back a favorable report, and two brought back... I'm sorry, in 12, uh, 10, the remaining 10 brought back a, an, uh, a, you know, a less than favorable report, and then the people uh, refused to go in. And, of course, then they were punished and had to wander around the desert for 38 years, uh, 40 years. Uh, it seems to be that, that it wasn't Hashem's fault, it wasn't Hashem's plan, that, they, uh, that that first generation die off in the desert. In other words, by preparing the people right up here in front of, uh, you know, right up, at the beginning of the book of Numbers, where they are really poised to go into the land. We really see that it is God's plan that they go in and begin to take the land as God had promised to the forefathers, to the Avot, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And yet, because of the people's sin of doubt, lack of trust, disobedience, uh, constant murmuring and, and, and grumbling against uh, Moshe as well as God, then God had to punish the people. This uh, census... Um, that we're reading about in chapter 4 of Naso, Parashat Naso in, in the book of Numbers, it also regulates certain chosen individuals who would be needed to disassemble, transport, and then reassemble the portable house of God, the Mishkan, the tabernacle, if you recall, that they had already started building way back in Exodus chapter 25 with the Parashat Trumah, 
we know that the tabernacle was to be the central meeting place between God and his people. And so um, God laid out the plans from start to finish, not only uh, who was to build the tabernacle, what was to be put inside of the, uh, the tent of meeting, but um, who was to transport it and why. And so God has a plan, and his, um, he has, uh, I should say, he has an order to everything. He didn't just say, okay, you guys, tear it apart and, and, and then schlep it from point A to point B and then put it back together uh, according to who can do it best. But rather, God actually singled out the, uh, the Gershon and the Merari families uh, to take it apart and put it together. And uh, because of that, um, there is a uh, contribution that's taken at, uh, let's see, it's, um, is it in, is it the beginning of Nassau? Let's see. Let me see if I can find it here. Uh, maybe it was in last week's portion uh, where we have the different tribal heads. Yes, it is in last week's portion where the different tribal heads bring uh, and donate like wagons and oxen and things like that. And uh, some of the families get to carry the pieces of the tabernacle in these carts pulled by oxen as opposed to other people. Um, different tribes have to um, transport the, the articles by hand on poles and things like that. So that's the first few chapters of the book of Numbers uh, to include Parashat Bamidbar as well as Parashat Naso. I want to move down now into um, one of the main uh, topics of this week's parasha, and that is the wife of suspect. The Hebrew term is Sota, S-O-T-A-H is how we generally spell it. The Sota is the wife who, um, unbeknownst to her husband, uh, is actually entertaining alien love. If you look at chapter, let me find it here, chapter 5, and start with verse 5, the Pasuk reads, Adonai said to Moshe, tell the people of Israel, when a man or woman commits any kind of sin against another person and thus breaks faith with, with I'm sorry, not that one, uh, let me drop down to Pasuk 11. Adonai said to Moshe, Tell the people of Israel, if a man's wife goes astray and is unfaithful to him, so she's the sota. That is, if another man's that is, if another man goes to bed with her without her husband's knowledge, so that she becomes impure, she becomes um, tamay uh, secretly, and there is a witness against her and she was not caught in the act. Then if a spirit of jealousy comes over him, speaking of the husband, and he is jealous of his wife, and she has become Tameh, um, or for that matter, if the spirit of jealousy comes over him, and he is jealous of his wife, and she has not become um, Tameh, she has not become impure, then, then it details what the, uh, um, the regulation is concerning, the wife of suspect. Now she is the suspected wife, because the husband, if you'll notice in this case, um, he, ha the, he has no knowledge of her going to bed with another man and defiling herself. It's, it clearly teaches that it's a secret. Um, there's no witness against her. We already know that if there were witnesses that the Torah prescribes um, a, a due process and an eventually stoning if she's uh, found guilty, along with her, uh, her, her paramour as well, her, uh, the one that she's uh, been unfaithful with. But in this particular um, situation, it says that she becomes impure secretly, and there's no witness against her, and she was not caught in the act. And so really what's happening is that the husband becomes jealous of his wife. He can't explain why he's jealous. He just knows he's jealous. And so the Torah prescribes a, a, um, a, a trial, as it were, a ritual um, to have her either prove her innocence or to uh, in, in cul incur the guilt, show that she's in fact guilty. So let's talk about this. This next section is entitled the Sota. Chapter 5 spells out certain regulations concerning relationships between men and women, specifically between husband and wife. Now interesting, is the phenomenon of the spirit of jealousy. I'm, I'm, I'm curious of this, this spirit of jealousy that may come over the man in verse 14 in the event that his wife is unfaithful without his direct knowledge. What is this mysterious jealousy that the Torah mentions, and, and why, why would the husband get it? Why would he contract this, 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 uh, uh, this uneasy feeling within himself? What is it about a husband and a wife that would allow one of the partners to suspect the other partner, and, and in this case, the woman really is guilty, at least in the way it's described in the first Pesukim. 
uh, it does say that she went to bed. But um, let's talk about this. There's something about the joining of a man and a woman that, in God's eyes, uh, allows them to, as it were, perceive the other person's actions or perceive um, uh, infidelity on the part of the other person. I believe, and I can't explain how I believe this, but the fact that I'm married, I guess, is, is proof, but uh, I believe that it testifies of the unique and mysterious echad, the oneness, the unity, that even uh, Rav Shaul spoke of in the Apostolic Scriptures. And what is that echad? Of course, we know from reading Genesis that um, the, the man will leave his, his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become basar echad, one flesh. When Hashem joins husband and wife, they share the same basar, the same flesh. They don't, they don't fuse. We know that's not what happens. I mean, those of you listening to my podcast, reading my commentaries that are married, you know that you are not one person with your spouse. Yet, somehow in the heavenly realm, Hashem sees you as one flesh, one unit. And, um, I mean, even though you're separate people here on earth, somehow... I believe that the Holy One, blessed be He, preserves the holy union of two individuals made one by giving them divine insight into matters of fidelity. We're going to see how this plays out on a, on a heavenly level later on. But for now, let's just talk about the humans. That union of husband and wife is of great sanction. And this is evidenced from a general examination of the Torah, but also we can gain this uh, insight from a general examination of the Talmud itself. And so I, for this exercise, for this particular commentary, I'm going to pull in some Talmudic quotes to show you what the Chazal, the rabbis of, of ancient uh, days gone by, uh, what they had to say about this particular um, phenomenon, the spirit of jealousy. What the Torah had to say about marriage and faithfulness left an indelible mark in the minds of the sages. Uh, this idea of matrimony, of two people coming together and uh, uh, being sanctioned, as it were, in the eyes of God. Uh, matrimony, of course, which is inculcated by the Talmud, is of the highest. It's of the highest standard. And so, um, some rabbis went to great lengths to make sure that there was no room for um, reproach when it came to uh, the marital status that they enjoyed with their spouse. Um, you don't read about many of the women in the Talmud. You always read about the rabbis and their students. However, those rabbis who were married, those teachers who were married, um, many of them had a very, very high standard when it came to uh, maintaining the uh, fidelity of the marriage that they enjoyed. The ordinary term for marriage, um, as spoken of in the Talmud, is kedushin. Kedushin, and the root word is kadash from where we get the word sanctified, or holy, kadosh, or kodesh, also share the same root word from kadash. So kedushim is a term for marriage. And there's a whole maseket, a whole tractate of the Talmud dedicated to this particular topic. It's called tractate kedushim. And so I'm going to lift a, maybe a quote or two from there. Uh, anyway, this term kedushim, marriage, denotes sanctification. Again, the root word is kadash. And it's so called because the husband prohibits his wife to the whole world like an object which is dedicated to the sanctuary. End quote. That's lifted from Maseket Kedushin Daf 2b. Now, if you'll remember, if you go back to the parasha, it uh, chapter 5, verse, uh, let's see, starting in, in verse 12. When it says, tell the people of Israel, if a man's wife goes astray and is unfaithful to him, that she, that is, if another man goes to bed with her husband, with her, without her, let's try that again. That is, if another man goes to bed with her without her husband's knowledge, so that she becomes what? Impure. Isn't it interesting that, it, that she becomes impure? Let me just turn to the Hebrew of that, of that, uh, of that parak, of that chapter, because I want to make sure of a certain word. Let's see, Numbers chapter 5. Pasuk 12. Um, let's see here. Okay, 
uh, which verse is it? Verse 13, okay. Okay. Yes, the, the word rendered impure there is Tame. I said that earlier, but I wasn't quite sure. Tame. Now, if you recall, Tame and Tahor from another um, study that we did, especially way back in the book of Leviticus, Tame and Tahor rendered um, uh, unclean and clean, respectively. Tahor is clean, Tame is unclean. And these are terms that are normatively understood within the um, proximity of some holy object or holy sancta. Um, for instance, if a person is pronounced tame, that is to say unclean, then he is usually unclean unto the holy sancta. That is to say, he cannot approach the sanctuary uh, without bringing some sort of um, atoning device to uh, uh, to um, to cleanse him. <laughs> also, if a person is rendered or pronounced tame, then he is unclean towards other individuals. And so it's interesting that the Talmudic quote that I just lifted there, let me read it again. The husband prohibits his wife to the whole world like an object which is dedicated to the sanctuary. Notice the um, uh, the uh, reference to the sanctuary there that the, that the Talmud makes. It's because whenever the wife, or the husband for that matter, but since we're talking about the sota, whenever the wife... Um, is unfaithful to her husband and in the passage the example given is that she has already um, defiled herself or she has already been unfaithful with another man then the Torah describes her not just as unfaithful but the Torah describes her as unclean that's what's interesting is that Hashem would couch it in that terminology it implies the strictest chastity in both parties when we talk about um, sanctification on, on a marital level the strictest chastity in both parties, hence the instructions in our current parasha. Let's quote the Talmud one more time. Quote, immortality, I'm sorry, immorality in the house is like a worm on vegetables. End quote. That's from uh, Masechet Sota, um, Daf 3b. Yes, there's even a tractate named Sota. <laughs> That's right. Those of you who have access to the Talmudic resources, and if you want to get more information than the Bible is providing for us, on this particular topic, turn to Tractate Kedushin, which deals with marital relations, and also go to Tractate Sota, which deals with the uh, adultery issues. Um, so, again, immorality is described uh, like a worm on vegetables. And what does a worm do to vegetables? Well, he burrows in, he hollows out, he consumes, he rots the vegetable from the inside. And so that's why they do, that's why they liken immorality to a worm on vegetables as well. The worm eats the vegetable from the inside out till eventually the vegetable is not um, it's not worth eating. Um, and um, as far as this issue of immorality, it holds good of the husband as well as the wife. Uh, again, from the Talmud, from uh, Masechet Sota, and this time again from uh, Daf 3b, another quote reads, He among the full-grown pumpkins and she among the young ones. This time it was from, um, from Daf 10a, but it's from the same tractate. Uh, speaking of the man, he among the full-grown pumpkins. He is going to rot. He is going to wither on the inside, and she among the young ones. Um, the, the, the comparison of men and women to vegetables. Um, men, if he's a wise man, if he's a chacham, he is, he is like a man among full-grown pumpkins. Um, and and the, the idea that a worm would come in and eat a, 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 a ripe pumpkin and to have it rot in the presence of the other pumpkins, that is to say, marital relations that go sour within the eyes of a, of a community. And, and indeed, none of us should be living in a place where we cannot be accountable to one another. A man goes bad in the, in the eyes of a community. It's like a, a full-grown pumpkin rotting before the eyes of the other pumpkins. And it's a shame that, um, that he would do so, because then the other pumpkins realize, gosh, what a waste, what a shame, what a loss to the community that this, this great pumpkin uh, before us is, is also rotting. And then with her, she among the young ones, because the women, the married women in the community are like the, 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 the full-grown um, full 
a, a vegetable in the eyes of the ones coming up underneath them, the young ones. Um, the older married women, well, just not the old, not just the older women, but the married women in particular, are supposed to be the models in the community. So that the single women are supposed to be looking at the uh, the married women with a, with a certain amount of respect. And so that's what the statement from the Talmud is trying to teach us: uh, He among the full-grown pumpkins, and she among the young ones. Um, this was a proverb which in, uh, indicates that infidelity on the husband's part conduces to unfaithfulness in the wife. Um, she and he are joined to one another. And the Talmud even went so far as to uh, cleverly teach the proverb to, to one partner or the other so as to uh, indicate that if one is unfaithful, then it, um, it perhaps leads to unfaithfulness on the part of the other. There's, there's possibly some truth in that maxim. Um, I'm not going to say that that's true in every case, but uh, let's go back to this jealousy thing. What is it? What is this jealousy that comes over the partner of the unfaithful one? I'm curious about that. I'm, I'm, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I wonder how that works. Um, I, I've not been in a position personally, thankfully, where uh, I've had to deal with this. Um, to my um, credit, to, to the credit of my wife, she's been faithful to me. We've been married for seven years, and I've never had the spirit of jealousy come over me. And so it's it's a uh, it's it's a good thing to have a wife who's faithful. I know my wife has never slept with another man, and uh, I've never had the spirit of jealousy come over me. So I'm not sure exactly what it feels like. I can only um, I can only um, extend my prayers and support to those of you who have gone through marriages that were wrecked by infidelity. I know it's a it's a difficult thing. Um, I, I personally as well have not been unfaithful to my wife. Uh, to the point of uh, sleeping with another woman. I've never had that desire. And thankfully, and hopefully, prayerfully, I'll never have to experience that. Um, I know that uh, married partners from time to time uh, are going to have to uh, spend time with the opposite sex, with someone who's not their spouse. Wives are going to have to work around co-workers, men, who might... Um, how shall we say, um, hit on them or, or, or flirt with them or, or you know, befriend them in such a way as to cause the, the man to become a little jealous of the uh, relationship that she shares with, with her co-workers, with her friends, people who are other men. And, and that's not exactly what I'm describing here. I, think that's, I don't think that's what the Torah is describing here as well. Likewise, I know men who um, have more female friends than they have male friends. Um, perhaps it's because of the, the unique position that they're in. Or maybe it's just because of the, the, the work situation that they find themselves in, where there's maybe more females than there are males. Sometimes bosses find them, themselves in an uncomfortable position where a, a secretary, a female secretary, might um, uh, be closer to him in, in some ways than his own wife. And, and that can make him feel a little uncomfortable. It can make the wife feel uncomfortable. I don't think that's what the Torah is talking about here when it talks about the, the jealousy that comes over the partner of the unfaithful one. But what I do think what needs to take place is that we as as partners, those you know, we're married to, to different, as we're married to our spouses, we need to be careful in the relationships that we do have with the opposite sex, um, especially if we're not married to the uh, to the person that we're friends with. I don't think it's wrong to have friends. Um, in in some ways, I don't even think it's wrong to be um, friendly, where where there's joking and laughing and, and 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 even side hugs and things like that, seem to be appropriate on some level. However. Um, if you're asking for me to make some type of a halakhic ruling as to what type of um, contact men and women can have with one another if they're not married to that other person, then you're asking the wrong person. You need to ask your spouse, what is the limit that you should prescribe for me? For instance, if I want to know what the limit that I should be able or should not be able to take in regards to females who are not my wife, then I don't need to ask my rabbi, my rabbi or my pastor. I need to ask my wife. You get it? I need to ask her, what is your comfort level? At what level do you begin to um, feel uneasy? And conversely. Uh, so you husbands and wives, you talk that out amongst yourselves. But let's go back to the Torah portion. What is this jealousy that comes over the, the partner? Well, let's turn to the Talmud once again. Uh, it quotes a clever, it has a, a clever quote, again from um, Tractate Sota, this time from Daf 17a. Uh, page 17a, quote, when husband and wife are worthy, 
that is to say, when they're faithful to one another, the Shekhinah, the manifest glory of God, is with them. When they are not faithful, that is to say, when I'm sorry, when they are not worthy, when they are unfaithful, then fire, in essence, jealousy consumes them. End quote. So the Talmud is trying to explain, I don't know again whether this is just a clever maxim, or if the rabbis are claiming that this is insight delivered to them directly from Sinai. Oftentimes they do claim that insight, but, but and, and, and I can't argue against it every time. But in this case, it seems to make some amount of sense here. When a husband and wife are faithful to one another, then God's favor resides upon them, both husband and wife. God smiles down upon them, realizing that uh, they are faithful to one another. But whenever one of them begins to step out of the boundaries of the marital relations, the, the rules that have been set down um, uh, by the partners themselves, again, different husbands and wives have different parameters that they operate within so that I cannot, I should not be able to project that same boundary upon uh, another married couple. At any rate, um, whenever a, a, a partner steps outside of the bounds that have already been established by the other partner, then the Talmud is trying to teach us that fire, in essence, jealousy, this is the jealousy spoken of in the Torah here, jealousy consumes them. And in essence, it is the antithesis to the otherwise favor of Hashem that should be resting on them. So it's almost as if God is withdrawing his favor from them in an effort to get the attention of one or the other partners because of the uh, infidelity. So um, I don't think I'm going to fully be able to understand or explain this jealousy that comes over uh, people. And to be sure, um, it doesn't happen to everyone. I mean, the Torah isn't saying that this, this is what happens all the time. It's simply giving us an example that we can... Uh, um, draw some um, some insp well draw some, I was going to just say inspiration but I think it's a little stronger than that we can draw some inference from we can actually build a halakha upon it um, but uh, we can't be dogmatic about it at any rate we humans stand to learn a great deal about marital fidelity from the one who wrote the book on the topic which of course is God himself wouldn't you agree if we want to know more about what a faithful wife is supposed to how she's supposed to behave herself to her husband, then we, the bride of Messiah, need to ask our husband, what is it that um, we are supposed to be uh, doing or not doing in regards to uh, faithfulness to you? Some of it is crystal clear. The Torah obviously outlines unfaithfulness on the part of a spiritual bride such as ourself. However, God himself has demonstrated for us in the pages of his word, as we, if we'll read further, uh, into the prophets and into the the, um, the, the, the latter Ketuvim, the writings and such, we were going we're going to see how God reacts against an unfaithful wife because we know as history has already taught us, Israel did not remain faithful, and so Israel being the bride of suspect and in this case Hashem knew, whereas in the Torah portion the husband doesn't know for sure he just suspects his wife. But in the case of Hashem, he knew she was unfaithful. She played the harlot over and over again. And God knew it, and God reacted. And so what we're going to find out in this next section is God's reaction and, and, and our uh, lesson that we can learn. What sort of lessons do you suppose that we could ascertain from the Torah's dealings on idolatry and the jealousy that it drives our husband to? Jealousy over idolatry. Let's talk about that, all right? This next section is entitled, Our Jealous Husband. As I've stated in another parasha, um, idolatry is one of the most insulting sins against our God. Why? Why do you think so? Well, in my limited scope of uh, understanding, when we replace God with a lesser interest, we are not only turning our attention towards something other than our Lord, we are actually focusing our love and affection things which were created to belong to Hashem alone. We're, we're focusing these things towards something which has no authority to even be identified as God. And that's where the problem comes in. In essence, we transfer the glory due to Hashem, our affection, to another less qualified object. Let me explain myself. 
Um, as in the case with Israel, uh, ancient Israel, it doesn't have to be the name. Uh, it doesn't have to have the name Baal to be a false god. Although in Israel's case, they did chase after many false gods. But uh, in our case, you know, in our 21st century application of these passages, we don't have to have an actually another false god. It doesn't have to be full-blown idolatry. Actually, anything other than Hashem Himself is an idol. Anything other than Hashem that our, that that drives our affection and 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 draws it away from God Himself. Um, if if there's some part of our life that that we are so consumed with that we cannot serve God the way that we should, then this becomes room to be labeled as an idol. And I mean, anything these days can be an idol. I mean, for instance, uh, our kids can be our idol. Our job can be our idol. In fact, our ministry can be an idol if we if we're focusing more on working for God than for serving or than 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 loving him as well. It's no wonder that our God is a jealous God and that's how he's described in the book of Exodus. In fact, let's turn to um a pasuk out of Parashat Kitisa which is uh, Exodus 34:14 is the pasuk I want to focus on in that particular parasha. The sages teach on the statement jealous found in that particular parasha at the uh, Kitisa Exodus 34:14. And I want to turn to the Midrash, the uh, collection of um of uh, inspirational writings uh that are very very um beneficial if you're not into Pashat but you want to um go into like say homiletic lessons. The Midrash is a great place to start. According to the Midrash, uh, the term jealous only applies when we as his created subjects transfer our affection to something that is less qualified to receive it than God himself. See how this works? As an example, the uh, rabbis, the Chazal, in the Midrash, they tell of a married couple. Listen to this example. It's going to be very, very clever. They tell of a married couple where the husband who is royalty, let's say he's a king, he becomes enamored with a woman who's not his wife. Um, you remember King David also became enamored with someone who's not his wife. The story says that upon discovery of his lust, his wife, the queen, confronts him, the, the king, about the other woman. All right, And in this confrontation, her husband finally confesses that he's, yes, he's fascinated with another woman. In this questioning, his wife then wants to know about the other woman's status. And the king is puzzled. Her status? Why do you want to know about her status, he asks. Well, his wife then explains to her husband, the king, that if he is lusting after someone of higher status than she is, someone higher than the queen, then perhaps the other rightfully ought to receive it, since the other is equal to or higher than the queen is. You following me so far? Perhaps this other woman in the king's life is higher than the queen herself. And if that's the case, then perhaps she ought rightfully to receive his affection. This is what the queen explains to the king. But, the queen goes on to explain to her husband, the king, if the other woman is of lower status, then the queen has a right to be jealous since her husband, the king, is stooping low to transfer his affection. Do you see the lesson there? Now, of course, the literal aspects of this midrash are ridiculous. I'm not saying that um, it's right if the queen, if the woman is higher than the queen and it's wrong if the woman is lower than the queen. That's not what I'm trying to get at. However, um, and, and in fact, no other woman, whether queen or commoner, should be occupying the king's thought. I think everyone agrees with me on that aspect of the little story that I just shared. However, um, I mean, we already know no one deserves his affection. However, the teaching principle remains valid. And here's what the, the little principle is trying to teach us, okay? God becomes jealous when we, his bride, when we transfer our attention to a lower, less qualified object. That's the point. We transfer our attention, our affection, to a less qualified, a lower object than God. And so God becomes jealous because we are stooping low. We are sending our affections low. Our affections should be high and lofty. And yet our affection stoops low to play the harlot with a less than, a, a, a poser, a, a God wannabe. Now, 
Think about this for a moment, okay? God wouldn't be jealous if the object of our affection was equal to or higher than he was, right? Anything or anyone who is equal to or higher than God should not ca cause God to become jealous. Of course, now here's the clincher, watch this. Of course, since there exists no other person or thing in the known universe that is equal to or higher than Hashem, then he has the right to become jealous. That's the clincher. That's it. We cannot serve anything else and expect him not to be jealous. The point is crystal clear. Because God is the highest, the, the highest there is. There's none higher than him. Then he alone deserves our affection. And if we kind of spin this back into the humans, where we have a husband and a wife, then in essence what, what the partners are saying to each other is that you are everything to me. And there's no one else higher than you. And therefore, to transfer my affection, which might lead to infidelity, to another person is to, to stoop low, because no one else is higher than you. Wow, it's pretty tough being married, isn't it? Those of you who are married, you're listening to these uh, podcasts and you've uh, read other passages. Um, if we had the time, we could go into many different passages in the Apostolic Scriptures where Yeshua talks about marriage and fidelity and, and, uh, and Shaul talks about that as well. And you know what? It can be a tough thing being married. It really can. It, it presents a whole world of problems when it comes to um, relationships with other people. And with all the troubles that pervade married life, perhaps those of you listening to my podcast who are married might think, gosh, maybe maybe it's better off being single. You know how Shaul talks about that in, in uh, one of his letters, I think it's in Corinthians, where he talks about how that the person who is married, their, their attention is divided between serving God and, 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 and uh, serving their spouse, as compared to the person who's single can devote their full attention to serving God. Perhaps it is supposed that the single life is better than being consumed by a jealous fire over an unfaithful spouse. I hope that's not what you're thinking if you're listening to my commentary. You who are married, the Torah says that um, you've got to work it out. If you have problems, you've got to work them out. Those of you who are single, relish in the situation that you're in at the moment. Don't seek to be married if it's going to cause an unnecessary distraction in your service to Hashem. Conversely, those of you who are married, if it's going to cause an unnecessary distraction and, and, and an attention to, and devotion to your work for God by seeking to be single, Shaul would, would caution you not to go that route. Be satisfied with the station that you're at. And if the doorway of opportunity opens up for a single person to become married, then Shaul would, would, would say, go right ahead, go ahead and get married, there's nothing wrong. Conversely, if... Um, if those of you who are married and, and, and the situation rises to where the marriage needs to be dissolved or one of the partners wants to um, get out and there's room or reason for the marriage to be dissolved, then um, Shaul says that we are not, um, we're not slaves to a, a life of, um, of, of, un, of unhappiness, as it were, then um, a, a divorce can take place. So, again, concerning marriage and single... I'm not going to say that either one is better than the other. You simply have to work with what you have and where you're at. Now, concerning singleness, however, a reader of mine once asked me the advantages. And here was my reply. And again, I'm going to use the information that Paul brought, uh, brings up in 1 Corinthians. Here's my answer. And then after this answer, I'm going to go ahead and call this part A to my commentary. Uh, and then we'll just finish out with part B. I think there will just be two parts to this particular commentary this week. Here's my answer. Quote, speaking to the reader that who wrote in. Uh, I want you to read 1 Corinthians chapter 7. In it, you'll find some very good instructions given to the married and the unmarried alike. It is true that the rabbis had and still have a high view of marriage. In fact, the Talmud stresses this view. And, let, and here I go into some, um, some quotes from the Talmud. Um, quote, the unmarried person lives without joy, without blessing, and without good. End quote. That's from uh, Yevamot 62b. Here's another one, quote, An unmarried man is not a man in the full sense, as it is said, Male and female created he them, and blessed them, and called their name man, end quote. That's, uh, of course, a reference to Genesis 5-2, taken from uh, Masekhet Yevamot, um, 
this time from Doff 63a. Another saying from the Talmud reads this way, A wife meant a home, hence the saying, quote, A man's home is his wife, end quote. That's from uh, Yoma 1.1. And Rabbi Yossi said, Never have I called my wife by that word, speaking of the word wife, but always my home. He calls his wife my home, end quote. That's taken from Tractate Shabbat uh, 118b. So the rabbis prefer marriage over the single life, as at least I gather it from reading the Talmud quotes there. But speaking to the single person who wrote in to me, I informed them, don't let this scare you. Remember, this is commentary on the Torah and not the authoritative Torah itself. These are men's opinions. High remarks are made in the Torah to the single individual who fully devotes himself to Hashem in his singleness. And I might encourage those of you listening to my podcast, those of you who are single and lonely, you have a great potential and a great calling and a great work that you can perform for Hashem as a single person. Don't pine your life away wishing you were married to the point that you are not very well equipped to do the work of God because of your 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 attention being divided over always looking out for for a spouse. I I know there are single people out there within the range of my voice here with the, of my podcast who have these feelings who are thinking gosh I would just be complete if I were married uh, single women I've talked to uh, speak this way sometimes single men s say it as well my advice to you again this is not halacha this is just my, my own advice um, pray about your station in life if Hashem wants you to be married pray that he'll show and bring the right person into your life who's to be your spouse but in the meantime be satisfied with where you're at for now and devote yourself to the work of God. Devote yourself to uh, uh, to service to God and to love God and be happy with where you're at and how you can be utilized as a single person. Okay? Um, pray about your potential mating. It's a very important decision to make. To be sure, the Torah designated it to be a lasting one. Even though divorces take place, it is a shame that two people can't come to an agreement with one another on every issue. People get married, people get hurt, divorces happen, and that's real life. And so Hashem is merciful, and He's a God of second chances. And so if you've been married once, and you've gotten divorced, and you're seeking to be married again, then Hashem can work with you. He's a God of second chances. You're not condemned if you've been divorced and you're not condemned if you are in the middle of a divorce there's there's no condemnation if you're in Messiah the point is Hashem can work with you seek to 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 uh, um, to do Hashem's will and, it, and if it's Hashem's will that you uh, that you dissolve the union uh, you know if, if things went sour and the other spouse was in it was was unfaithful and a get is appropriate, then by all means pursue that and bring closure to the topic and, and get on with your life, get on with serving Hashem. And if He should introduce you to another person along the road after you've been divorced once, well then so be it. Hashem is the God of second chances. Okay? We have been talking about the wife of suspect, the Sota, found in Numbers chapter 5, the woman who has. Um, who has been unfaithful to her husband and her husband doesn't know it yet. And in this unfaithfulness, she is um, she's called into question and she has to go before the priest and she's made to drink this, this really strange mixture of, of dirt from the floor of the Mishkan, um, part of a, of a curse that was written on a scroll and, and dissolved in water. Um, and uh, she drinks this and if she's innocent, then everything's okay. But if she's not innocent, if she's guilty, and of course the, the example given was that she was guilty. If she's guilty, then her then her her belly distends, her thigh swells, or shrinks. I'm sorry, and she doesn't have children, and that's a curse. Uh, ask any woman who's married, especially within the um, time period when the Tanakh was written, to be married and to not be able to give children to your husband, especially because you were unfaithful with another man. That's a curse, to be sure. So, that was part A. In part B, I want to talk about a very, very familiar topic. I want to talk about the Aaronic Benediction. 
This is found in Numbers chapter um, 6. Actually, let me turn to it here. I closed my Bible by mistake. It is in Numbers chapter 6, verses 22 through, um, basically through 27. Many people, both Jews and Christians, are familiar with the uh, blessing found in that particular passage. It's easily the most notable feature of this week's portion. And so this next portion, or this next um, section, is entitled Aaronic Benediction, or the uh, Priestly Blessing. The, uh, the priestly benediction of chapter 6, verses 22 through 27, uh, can be heard in just about every synagogue, both Messianic and non-Messianic alike. If you are um, in the habit of reading uh, uh, through the prayer book um, on a regular basis, you know, Shakrit prayers, Minka prayers, Ma'arif prayers, etc., then you're going to encounter this blessing as well. But what's really neat, in my opinion, is that many Christian churches have also retained this um, tradition. Um, Lutheran churches are, are fond of having this uh, tradition of, of uh, saying the Aaronic benediction near the end of their services. The blessing itself naturally falls into three parts if you read it and look at it. Uh, the first blessing, verse 24, the second blessing, verse 25, and the third blessing, verse 26. So we got these three parts, and we're going to talk about those three parts. Now, the ancients are not without their comments on this most beloved of Torah blessings. All right, I like to look up the uh, the uh, rabbis and see what they have to say about certain topics at times, because they give us an inside peek into how these verses were utilized and interpreted long before the Christian Church came along, and uh, also um, uh, retained and or mimicked. Um, the blessings. Quoting from the Stone Edition Tanakh, all right, uh, let's look at some of what the sages had to say. The first blessing, all right, let's talk about that one first, uh, which is verse 24. It, it, um, it's helpful to have this open while you're reading it. In fact, let me go ahead and read it first. If you don't have a chance to get to a Bible, let me just read it for you out of, um, let me read it for you out of David Stern's Jewish translation, the complete Jewish Bible. I'm going to read the English. And then what I'll do for you on this podcast, um, I'm going to read it in Hebrew as well as English. But near the end of my podcast today, I'm going to include an audio file of myself singing the Aaronic Benediction as recorded live in one of our own Torah services, one of our own synagogue services uh, on each Shabbat, okay? So that'll be a special treat for many of you who've never heard me chant the blessing as well, okay? The English reads, starting in verse 24, May Adonai bless you and keep you. Verse 25 says, May Adonai make his face shine on you and show you his favor. And verse 26 says, May Adonai lift up his face toward you and give you peace. Let's, tar- let's start with the first blessing. May God give you the many blessings that are specified in the Torah, according to the Sifra and protect your newly gained blessing of prosperity so that bandits cannot take it away from you, according to Rashi. Now that's what the um, ancients had to kind of um, add to what the verse said there, right? As far as the second blessing, this is how Sephorno um, um, embellished on it. He puts, May God enable you to perceive the wondrous wisdom of the Torah. Uh, and then on the third blessing, uh, a quote from the Sifra as well as Bahukosai, uh, we read, quote, One may have prosperity, health, food, and drink, but if there is no peace, it is all worthless, end quote. All of those were lifted from page 340 from the uh, Stone Edition Tanakh in their comments on the three blessings. Now, I personally believe that our sages had some wise things to say about the Torah, considering the fact that they lived in an era when the knowledge of the Messiah was either suppressed or rejected, right? Um, however, we who know the blessed name of Messiah Yeshua, those of you listening to my podcasts who do claim the name of Yeshua, know what I'm talking about? We know the power of his fellowship. We can add further insights to this ancient benediction. You think we should be able to? Let's go ahead and, 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 and take our cue from the Chazal, from the, from the sages, and let's go ahead and add some messianic insights to these particular blessings, all right? I'm going to go ahead and do that for you in my own commentary. Perhaps, maybe someday, you all could do that on your own, um, you know, make like a, your own commentary on these three verses, and, uh, uh, you know, put a messianic spin to it and see what you think. I think you'd be surprised to find out what the, uh, what the, what the Holy Spirit 
the Ruach HaKodesh will reveal to you um, concerning these blessings. But for now, let me go ahead and read my own insights, okay? Starting with the first blessing, which in Hebrew reads, May Adonai bless you and keep you. You know, if you stop and think about it, before you found the Messiah, God sought for you. He sought to bless you by bringing you into the fellowship of His beloved Son. When the time was right and your heart was tender, He lovingly reached out to you and saved you from the death grip that sin had you in. Your tender heart accepted His covenant relationship based on trusting faithfulness to His only unique Son. His covenant love for you secured a place for you in His kingdom to come. You were His for the keeping. Think about what the verse said. May the Lord bless you and keep you. That's my take on that one. Let's move to the next verse. The next verse in the Hebrew reads, The English says, May Adonai make His face shine on you and show you His favor. The Torah, speaking of this verse, this is my own messianic spin on it. The Torah teaches us the wonderful yet mysterious truth that the saving name of Adonai is Yeshua. The mighty name of Yeshua is the power of salvation from the Father Himself. When Yah's salvation walked the earth in bodily form, we beheld His kavod, His glory, and it was full of grace and truth. To attempt to look at the eternal yod heh was to invite instantaneous death. To be sure, the Torah teaches us that no man has seen God and lived. Yet, Yeshua informed us that to look upon His face is to behold the face of the Father. The gracious expression of the Father's favor was demonstrated most fully in His Son's bloody sacrificial death, burial, and miraculous resurrection. Through the sacrifice of the Son, the Father's face shines down upon us. Amen. Look at the verse again. May Adonai make His face shine on you and show you His favor. And then the last verse reads in Hebrew, Yisa Adonai panai velecha vayasim lecha shalom. The Torah says here, Yisa Adonai. What is the meaning of Yisa? Well, the root of this word Yisa is the word Nasa, which means to lift, to raise up, to furnish, to magnify, to pardon. We actually gain the, uh, the Hebrew word Nasi, which means prince or exalted one or chief from the same root word. Okay, But we also get a little known, more specialized meaning from the word Nasi. And this Hebrew word also means rising wind or vapor. Who, you answer this question for me, who is the magnificent rising wind which uplifts the face of Adonai? Who is he? Who is that exalted vapor who testifies of all that Yeshua was and is and is to come, whose filling ushers in everlasting shalom? Who is the power of God to stand us on our feet and put a new song in our mouths? Why the Ruach HaKodesh, of course. He is this rising wind. He is this person. He is the lifter of our souls. And His miracle working and dwelling is the power of God to lift up our countenance and usher in the genuine shalom that only comes from knowing the Messiah Yeshua in the pardon of our sins. Amen. Look at the verse again. May Adonai lift up His face toward you and give you peace. So, I hope you like my um, messianic take on those three, three verses there. This blessing has many wonderful facets indeed. To be sure, Hashem says that the Kohanim, the priests, are the ones who are to bless the people. Read verse 22 specifically, and you'll see that that's what the verse is saying. Yet in verse 27, it's interesting that verse 27 says explicitly, quote, In this way, 
they, speaking of the priests, are to put my name on the people of Israel, so that I will bless them. Vasam, what does it say in Hebrew? It says, Vasamu et shmi al b'nei Yisrael va'ani avrachim. God is the one who places the blessing. Who does the blessing? Well, don't be confused. The priests are the conduits. But only Hashem can truly provide the covenant power necessary to bring about a, a, a right relationship with Him through His Son. Only Hashem can bring a person into a right relationship with Yeshua, bringing about a life that is changed as a result of the Spirit that comes to dwell within us. Amen? Amen. Let me read the verses in Hebrew for you, and then I'm going to go ahead and add the Aaronic benediction as I've chanted it in our own messianic our own messianic synagogue, and this is a recorded a recording taken from um, a live recording, right straight from one of our services. But again, the English 22 says, Adonai said to Moshe in chapter six, Adonai said to Moshe, speak to Aharon and his sons and tell them that this is how you are to bless the people of Israel. You are to say to them, may the may Adonai bless you and keep you. May Adonai make his face shine on you and show you his favor. May Adonai lift up his face towards you and give you peace. In this way, they are to put my name on the people of Israel, so that I will bless them. And the Hebrew says, Vaidaber Adonai el Moshe Lemor. Daber el Aharon ve'el Banaiv Lemor ko tivrahu et b'nei Yisrael amor lahem. Iverecha Adonai ve'yishmarecha. Yair Adonai panaiv elecha ve'chunecha. Yisa Adonai panaiv elecha ve'yasem lecha shalom. Vasamu et shmi al b'nei Yisrael va'ani avarachim. And now, here is the Aaronic benediction as I have chanted it live from one of our own services as recorded in our own Sabbath service. Okay? Let's dismiss with words from Torah. Yiverecha Yahweh var yishmarecha Ya'er Yahweh panai velecha vichunecha Yisa Yahweh panai velecha vayasem lecha shalom May Yahweh bless you and keep you May Yahweh make his face shine on you and show you his favor May Yahweh lift up his countenance toward you and give you peace we had B'Shem Yeshua HaMashiach, Sar HaShalom, in the name of Yeshua the Messiah, the Prince of Peace. Shalom. shalom. Shabbat, shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Okay, and Shalom Shalom. Well, thank you for staying with me. Um, I hope you had an enjoyable time, and I hope that this was a, um, a fun commentary. I invite you, if you do live in the uh, Denver area, Denver, Colorado, and you're near Thornton, uh, I invite you to our Messianic Shabbat service on Saturdays. The service starts at 1 o'clock p.m. on Saturday afternoon. And before that, we have Sabbath classes from 11.45 to 12.45 a.m. Uh, from 11.45 a.m. to 12.45 uh, p.m. And then, of course, the service starts 15 minutes later. Um, so I, I invite you to come out to one of our services sometime. The closing blessing for our commentary is as follows. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asher natan lanu Torah temet vechaye olam natabatochenu. Baruch ata Adonai noten haTorah. Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the Universe. You have given us your Torah of truth and have planted everlasting life within our midst. Blessed are you, Lord, Giver of the Torah. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. That concludes our show for today. Remember. Because the Messiah has already come, the Torah is now a document meant to be lived out in the life of a faithful follower of Yeshua, through the power of the Ruach HaKodesh to the glory of God the Father. It should not be presumed that it can be obeyed mechanically, automatically, legalistically, without having faith, 
without having trust in Hashem, without having love for God or man, and without being empowered by the Ruach HaKodesh. To state it succinctly, Torah observance is a matter of the heart, always has been and always will be. My name is Torah teacher Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song was produced and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at Yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y E S H U A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com.